Hello, I'm Angus Scott and this is The Debrief Live. What has happened at Brighton over the past two decades or so is a minor miracle. Homeless after the sale of the Goldstone Ground in 1997, languishing in the lower leagues and for years getting through managers quicker than the Tories do their leaders. However... They are now a success story to rival any club. Playing European football for the first time, even challenging the top four for a Champions League spot, but on a tiny budget compared to the big six. And with a transfer policy, the envy of most of the Premier League. Moises Caicedo bought for four and a half million pounds, sold for 110. Alexis McAllister bought for seven million, sold for 35. No club in Europe made a bigger profit from transfer business than Brighton in the summer. Yet they are still in the top six in the league. Ben Jacobs is here as ever as financially astute as Tony Bloom. (laughs) I don't know about that. But what I do know is that Brighton are winning hearts and minds and have done for a while. So can they do what my team have done and go on to win the Premier League? We shall see. Well, that is another question, Ben, because there is another side to that coin, as you well know. But we'll discuss that in a bit. Of course, Fabrizio Romano will be here in a minute to let us know a little bit more about how Brighton go about their business. All the transfer prospects are on their way. But also with us are two journalists who really know how the club operates. Firstly, documentary maker Matt Lorenzo. Now, Matt has spent the last two years or so behind the scenes at the Amex, making his soon-to-be-released documentary Stand or Fall for Sky. It's still ongoing, Matt, but you've had an interesting couple of years there. Yes, I'm not sure it'll ever finish. The trouble with it is that um, they keep winning, so you don't know when to end it. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I think yeah. Well, I think that would be well, quite a good ending. Otherwise, you, you'd go on forever. Also joined by uh, Johnny Cantor, who's the BBC's local Brighton man, who's certainly enjoying Brighton's first venture into Europe because he got to go to Marseille this week. Uh, and you, <laughs> not bad, you is it? Not bad. It makes, yeah, you, <laughs> it makes a little bit of a change from some of the clubs where I went to uh, 15 years ago. But uh, no disrespect to Oldham and Rochdale and the like, but uh, it was certainly nice to. <laughs> to go to the south of France. I actually did say, I am keep waiting for Matt's documentary, but they keep sort of venturing into new territory. So he has to probably keep updating it. That's right. That's well, right. You, got there, you got there on time, Johnny, unlike some of the supporters there this week. Yeah, that's right. One of the uh, planes that was coming over was delayed. It had a certain Tony Bloom on the plane as well. It was delayed <laughs> by about three hours. Um, but um, just as they were trying to sort of sort themselves out, and obviously they're a bit of concern about whether they would make kickoff, you know, over the tannoy goes, you know, bing, bing, and then uh, you're expecting to hear the pilot, but no, it's the chairman um, who was explaining to the fans that they'd actually arrange for coaches to be brought directly to the airport to try and uh, limit the delay and bring their their tickets with them so that they can actually give them to them uh, and try and process it a little bit quicker to see if they could make it. I think they were about 20 minutes, 25 minutes late for the game in the end, but um, maybe just a small window into the mind of the attention to detail that uh, the owner and the club take towards their fans. Yeah, I think the players were about 20 minutes late as well to that game. <laughs> um, Matt, Matt. Matt, look, you that, that that attention to detail is that something you have noticed as as you've wandered the corridors of of the Amex and been behind the scenes with the club. Yes, so they're a, professional is the right word. They're a, a, a really professionally run outfit, but not to the um, at the expense of just good humour and warmth. I mean, uh, Johnny, you know far better than I. But you know, from from the 
the top down, the bottom up, everybody there is, is really approachable. And you get quite a warm feeling when you go to Brighton. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I haven't got anything but compliments for them. A bit boring, isn't it, really? But there you go. <laughs> what sort of a character for you, uh, Matt, is Tony Bloom? Uh, well, I've only met him a couple of times. Um, I think he's uh, a very friendly, nice man. Uh, obviously, super intelligent. So we haven't got much in common. Uh, I've interviewed him <laughs> on a couple of times. Um, he's he's quite guarded about his uh, business life. Um, I would be if I was making that much money. He's obviously got some sort of secret that he doesn't wish to share with the likes <laughs> of me. But his 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 work um, in the football club is just amazing. Really, I, um, I, I laugh about Chelsea. They keep giving him all this money for his players. Why don't they just buy him? Um, <laughs> that would turn the club around instantaneously. Looking at what what you see every every day, every every week, Johnny, um, that attention to detail, that that's the different way of doing things that that Tony Bloom works. Yes, I think so. I think we must remember always that he's a fan, you know, and he supported the club since he was probably seven, eight years old. And that means that he has slightly different connection to the club than maybe some owners, particularly in the Premier League at the moment. Um, and that and that shines through. But also, I think he's um, he's very loyal. Um, I think, you know, he he likes that kindness, that warmth that Matt was talking about. Um, but also he's got a business brain as well. So I think that balance is the perfect balance, really, for, for r- running it as a business, but also those links to the community that they have, whether it be his investment into women's football, um, into disability football, um, you know, lots of different areas within the, the city as well. So he's never, ever forgotten his roots. Of course, his grandfather was a board director in the times of Mike Bamber a long time ago, this sort of crazy sort of flamboyant character who ran the club um, when they were last in the top flight. So um, there's that link as well. And I think that n- never goes away. You never, ever see, you know, you always see that. But I mean, I've been in fans forums that I do each year with him um, and he's brilliant. Um, he answers any question you ask him, but also he acts upon it as well. If someone brings up a topic, you know, I, I won't remember one year I went to ask him and say, thank you very much for your time. And he said, just hold on a second. I've just got to sort something that came up there. He immediately wants to improve things, always looking to better the club, always looking to get the right people in place. But also I would say that he empowers people as well. He gives people an opportunity to grow within um, a role. I mean, you look at the role that David Weir has now. I'm taking over from Dan Ashworth. I mean, that was, I think, potentially a huge blow for them when he went to Newcastle. But it's been seamless. You know, David Weir has come in and, and it's as if really Dan Ashworth has, has, has never left. But what about uh, Tony Bloomer's uh, sort of Mr. Algorithm, as it were? Just just describe how forensic he is in his research for any sort of part of his business and most specifically Brighton. Well, I mean, if it comes down to a player, I mean, in this weekend, we've just seen another two, you know, already my phone's been going this morning. People say, you know, what about this Carlos Baliber and what about uh, Simona Dingra? Um, where have they come from? Are they going to be the next Moises Caicedo? So I think he applies that. But obviously, he has a background with Star Lizard, his company that's based in North London that that looks at all that, you know, 
incredible amounts of very sophisticated data that he puts together, looks at loads of different types of models, has different researchers, contacts, and he uses them to put into the melting pot to find the best decision and make those decisions based on the, the best rationale, I assume, because he gets it you know right more often than he gets it wrong. So um, I think it's down to anything. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's the use of plastic within the stadium or whether it's a uh, hundred million pounds for a, a player and whether they should sell him. He just you seems to have that that clarity of what exactly what he wants and what he thinks is best for the football club. Is there a sense, Matt? I mean, you've plotted uh, you've you've plotted their history all the way from from rack and ruin to to where they are now. Is there a sense that this is totally driven by Tony Bloom and and his incredible brain and and sophistication of of uh, the the way he runs the club? And if it weren't for him, then Brighton wouldn't be where it is now. Uh, I think it's a point that Johnny would I'm sure would agree with that it wasn't uh, just Tony Bloom. Before he happened, there was Dick Knight who who got hold of the club at their lowest ebb, if you like, when they were went to Hereford and only survived, stayed in the football league by virtue of a draw. And it was he that led the campaign from that point onwards to almost the building of the stadium. At which point Tony, who'd always been a supporter, stepped in, as you might do with ninety million quid. Um, to help build the stadium. Um, and as you might do, if you put that amount of money and you, you take over as chairman. So I think the two of them uh, deserve credit. But what Bloom has done since is just applied the science. It's quite remarkable what he's done. I asked him, "Do you have a, did you have a vision? Do you have a vision? That was a dim question because he obviously does. And everything that runs through that football club has been analysed, planned, seen coming by Tony Bloom. It's quite remarkable what goes on inside that head. Um, and, you know, the, he, the credit lies with him. And it's not just him, it's the people he picks. We haven't mentioned Paul Barber yet, but he's a fundamental part of their success. And everybody along the way, and Johnny alluded to it just back then, David Weir comes in. How are they going to replace, you know, um, their, their uh, analytic man? You know, the, or, how can they do this? Well, they just do. And they do it at that level. They do it. On the playing side, they do it at a managerial level. It's just incredible the way it all flows and it keeps going almost without a hiccup. And I'll end in a minute. But when big teams like Chelsea ask, why can't we do this? Well, the reason they can't is they didn't start 15 years ago. Uh, and, you know, the, the vision has been operated upon ever since. Ben, Matt is is right in in um, signalling out um, Paul Barber and how important he is to the operation as well. Yeah, and his relationship with Tony Bloom and Paul Barber is one of the best in the business and is highly in demand but has no real desire to leave Brighton. And I think that tells you everything. It's interesting comparing Brighton to Chelsea because obviously it is different models and now Chelsea is a new model and Brighton is an established model with a very specific purpose. And what will be interesting in all of this, I think, Johnny, is what happens to the Brighton model with success because we saw Leicester get success with a model and in many ways, financially speaking, it was counterproductive because the success came so fast that everything else had to catch up. And they spent very fast and they went into a bit of financial difficulty. And ultimately, now they've got relegated with Chelsea. It's a little bit different because it's a serial winner mentality from Abramovich into a multi-club model. So I think Paul Barber, for me, is the individual that's the glue at the club because he keeps the model grounded. He makes sure it doesn't move too fast. He makes sure that 
the end goal is Europe, but not at the expense of any kind of ruin. And when I last spoke to Paul Barber, he made it very clear to me, Johnny, that the model wasn't going to change overnight just because Brighton had got European success. So I suppose that's my question to you. People, if they're Brighton fans, will want to keep seeing progress. How do you balance this Brighton model with the desire to succeed in the Premier League and how important to that is Paul Barber? He is essential. Um, and a lot of people thought that he probably would leave the club at some point, but he stayed maybe longer than people thought. And I think that is down to the relationship that he has with Tony Bloom. But w- what I would say as well is that they are very much look at a short, mid and long term strategy. And Paul is very good at that. He, he I think he foresees challenges. Um, he knows you know, when to make the right decision. And that's really, really important. So, um, but in terms of, I mean, a lot of the fans would say, you know, we have to decide what we want to be as a club. But when I spoke to, I did an interview with Tony um, a few weeks back. He said, there are no ceilings at this football club. Um, He very much feels that, but he would never jeopardise the club. And I think that pace of progress is so important that he would never want to because of the history of it, because of his connection to it. He knows what happened previously. So I think they'll tread very carefully, just keep trying to grow. He said a few years back, I want to establish ourselves as a top 10 club. He wanted a mission statement. He wanted a target. Then once we've established ourselves as a top 10 club, then we want to get into Europe. And just those those constant small steps, building, building. But it's always, they're realistic. They know it's going to be very, very difficult to challenge clubs that have revenues far beyond their means. Yeah, and it's an interesting debate. And what uh, Ben was hinting at there, I think, is the fact that, you know, they're, they're only one step away from a, a failure that that Leicester have um, unfortunately had that, that you get it wrong and then you try and expand too much and then, and then it all goes wrong and you end up um, as Leicester yeah. are now in the, in the championship. One thing I would say is that I think, and this comes back to Tony's experience um, in betting and as a gambler previously as the lizard, I think what he does is very much, and, and Paul Barber, is minimise risk. So if you've got right people in the right positions, if you've got a succession planning, if you've got the right person to take over from that person, you're always minimising the risk. And therefore, you're less likely to come a cropper because whatever happens, if something in the machine fails, you've always got another way out. So other things will be ticking over so you can focus on any particular issue that might come your way because you don't have to worry about the rest of things because that's all moving smoothly. And I think that idea of minimising risk, I'm not a betting man, so I don't really know, but I would have thought is the way forward and something that maybe is being applied to the club as well. Well, they certainly do things differently and uh, they have a different transfer policy, it seems, the envy of the world um, down at the Amex. And a little bit earlier, I spoke to Fabrizio Romano with Ben and caught up about that policy uh, down at Brighton. When you look at the Brighton operating model, their transfer dealings, is it uh, different to most clubs? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely unique what they are doing in general and the idea they have, how they sign players, how they trust their scouting department, how they involve also the manager in this process. I think it's something something absolutely special. Uh, and uh, I can I can tell you that also Roberto Rezerbi, when he arrived there, 
didn't know the system that well because he didn't join the club in the summer. You know, when you have, for example, in June, in July, some time to speak to the club and to take your time to prepare the transfer business. But he arrived in September in a completely different situation to replace Graham Potter. And I'm told that when he arrived there, he understood the system after a couple of weeks and he was like, okay, this is completely different, obviously in a positive way. And I think what Brighton are doing is absolutely special. So congrats to them. But the interesting thing is they go and get someone like Ansu Fati on loan. That's not the usual Brighton-type deal. And he suddenly comes in on loan and is the highest-paid player in the club. Yeah, this is something surprising. But I think it's also true that uh, Brighton are now entering probably another moment of their history. They're playing European football. They're going to the next uh, stage of their of their growth. And so I think it's also normal to bring in this kind of players because it's important to send also a message to the world market to sign the number 10 of Barcelona. is something really special to, uh, to Brighton and something that is going to change their history in terms of transfer market, in terms of attracting also other players in the future. So I think it was a very clear message also from Robert to the Zerbi. The Zerbi loves to work with, obviously, young players, quality players. You can find many hidden gems around the world as they are doing. But sometimes, if you want to play at the highest level in the best competitions, you also need someone who knows very well the game in terms of pressure, top clubs, and also feeling free to follow the manager's ideas. In that case, Roberto De Zerbi made the difference. The difference. Roberto De Zerbi really wanted Ansu Fati and he was pushing for that deal to happen. Okay, you talk about those younger players. Evan Ferguson is one of those. New deal for him, but is there a release clause in that deal? No, at the moment I don't have confirmation on that one. Then we know that Brighton are very good at hiding things in terms of transfer negotiations, but at the moment they're not confirming any uh, any clause. Also because, honestly, I think they're very uh, quiet and relaxed on the, on the Evan Ferguson situation because they know that obviously many top clubs around the world, and especially in England, are keeping an eye on that boy, but at the same time they want to give him uh, the right time to, to make right things, to make the right process at Brighton. So they're not in a rush at all to, to sell the player. And I'm not sure that it's going to happen next summer. It really depends on the value of the player. But after extending his contract, the plan at Brighton is to keep the player at least for one more season. So it's not going to be easy at all for the top clubs to arrive there, pay and sign even Ferguson. Fabrizio, let's move on to Manchester United. Scott McTominay scored an astonishing brace in injury time as Manchester United beat Brentford at the weekend. Does that put him in the shop window in January or is there a chance that he could stay at Manchester United? I think he could stay. Honestly, I think the situation is going to be exactly the same it was in the summer. In the summer, May United, when they had the first meeting with Eric and Hag to discuss the summer transfer window, they were very clear in making some kind of list of players who had to leave the club on permanent transfer and players who were maybe available on the market only in case they received important proposals. Otherwise, they were very happy to keep players at the club. And Scott McTominay was in that list. So it was like, okay, if we receive an important proposal, we could discuss and let Scott leave. Otherwise, we would be prepared to keep the player at the club and he will be an important player in the rotation. And when they received the £30 million proposal from West Ham at the end of July, beginning of, of August, it was not enough to convince Manchester United. So it's very clear that they are not going to sell for, for that amount. And also when Fulham arrived in the final hours of the transfer window to replace Joe Palinha, in that case was the player, was Scott McTominay, who said, no, I want to stay at May United and I want to fight for my place. So at the moment, they're very happy with Scott, obviously, on the pitch. That brace was important. 
But I can guarantee that Man United and the coaching staff are very happy with his attitude also in every single training session. McTominay is super professional, super serious, never complaining when he's not playing. Obviously, he wants to play as all the players in the world, but he's never complaining, never creating any issues. And so I think for Man United, it would be really clear. If they receive a very important proposal, they could be open to letting him go. Otherwise, they're very happy to continue with him at least till the end of the season. And the Jaden Sancho situation still hasn't improved and seemingly no apology privately or publicly has been given by the player to Eric Ten Hag. So it's looking likely that Sancho might leave in January. Where could he go? We've heard rumours this morning of Juventus, Roma have been linked, a Dortmund return has been discussed. Alitifak made an inquiry towards the end of the summer window, but Sancho didn't want to go. What are you hearing? Honestly, at the moment, I'm not aware of anything concrete with Italian clubs. Uh, I was checking that about Juventus uh, and also about Roma, but at the moment, they are not looking for that kind of player. It's not about Sancho, that kind of position, I would say, for the January transfer window. Then it's still October, uh, things can change, but at the moment, they are very happy with the players they have in those positions. And so at the moment, with with Juventus and Roma, there uh, there is nothing concrete. And then I think we have to see what's going to happen with German clubs, because obviously Sancho did very well in Bundesliga, and so let's see if Borussia Dortmund will decide internally to, to return on this deal, to try and negotiate with Man United. At the moment, nothing has been decided by Borussia Dortmund. I think it will take some time. It's going to be important for them to understand in which European competition they will be, wishing them to be in an European competition, of course, in the second part of the season. And then maybe some other German club could be, could be interested. And English clubs, of course, because there could be an opportunity maybe for a loan deal. Uh, let's remind that for Manchester United, at the moment, they are still waiting to see what's going to happen with Jadon, if he's going to apologize or not. But in general, uh, for Manchester United, when it's a loan deal for an important player, they want the salary paid and also a loan fee. Uh, and look what happened with Donny van de Beek. The deal with Real Sociedad collapsed because they wanted the whole salary paid and the loan fee also included. So... It's not going to be that easy, but I'm sure that obviously the situation will continue like this with Sancho not with the squad. The January transfer window is going to be the only solution. What about um, Conor Gallagher? Uh, an uncertain future at, at Chelsea, despite him having captained the side this season? Yeah, I think it's more than more than that. is just a player trying to do his best in a strange situation because obviously over the summer transfer window there were many possibilities with West Ham, with Tottenham. It was never that advanced. It never reached the advanced stages like, okay, he's going to leave. But it was negotiated and it was discussed. So obviously Gallagher knows that very well. But at the same time, he really loves Chelsea. He's very happy at Chelsea. He wants to fight for his place there. So I think it remains an open situation. We have to see what's going to happen in the next two, three months is going to be the impact of the player on the pitch because his contract expires in summer 25 and for Chelsea the message is very clear is exactly what they did with Mason Mount so they want contracts to be extended otherwise they are prepared to sell players so the contract extension is going to be a topic for sure for for Conor Gallagher but again this is something to be decided I think in the next two three months is going to be really important to see what kind of impact Conor will have on squad. Now, even though the window's shut, Fabrizio, you're still breaking exclusives, of course. And congratulations on a big one a couple of days ago. Jared Bowen signing a new seven-year deal at West Ham. Give us the details. Yeah, it's an important one. And I think it's a very important one because for West Ham, was not an easy negotiation. Bowen is wanted by many clubs, not in terms of official bids, so it was never something advanced, but many top clubs started to discuss his name internally, to send some scouts around to keep an eye on him in close uh, view because he's doing very well at West Ham. And for them, it was crucial to extend that contract. So the negotiation was, was tough, but let me say that Gerald Bowen was really, really convinced about the project. So he's 
100% convinced that West Ham are going to another stage of their of their process to to go back to on the on the top. And for sure, the negotiation was a bit long because it took weeks to make it happen. But at the end, it was successful for West Ham. Also crucial what the new director is doing there team staten pushing for all the best players to stay at the club and then going to find players like mohammed kudus who could be top players in the future so i think this is absolutely part of their project and these kind of extensions are like new signings in my opinion in modern football it's really complicated for these clubs to extend contrast and so congratulations to west ham because this is really like signing a top player well, uh, congratulations then, we should probably say, to Newcastle for, for keeping Bruno Gimaraes. Um But he does have a, a release clause also in his contract, is that right? Yeah, the clause is there, 100% confirmed. It's a clause for £100 million. So that's going to be the, the fee required to sign Bruno Gimaraes in the future. Uh, let me say that Bruno extended the contract because he's very happy at Newcastle, because he's going to receive different kind of salary of course when he joined from Lyon was a talented midfielder but not the super midfielder that we are saying in Premier League on a regular basis now at Newcastle and so new salary new long-term contract very happy at the club this is why Bruno decided to extend but also the close is there and so it's going to be an interesting situation let's see if already next summer or in two years this is going to be crucial I think to see where Newcastle will be next season if they will be in Champions League again I think it will be very good news for them also to, to hope to keep a player like Bruno but in any case the close is there and is 100 million pounds. That's great again, Fabrizio. We appreciate you joining us and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you as always and see you soon. Thanks, Fabrizio. Ben, it's interesting what Fabrizio said about uh, Brighton's transfer policy. We've discussed it here. Do, do you get the sense there's a slight transitioning now? We talked about Ansu Fati, so they've had to adapt their policy slightly. I think you adapt your policy because of Europe, but you don't change your model because of it. So with Ansu Fati, it's a loan deal. And I think that you take a player of that quality and ultimately the Barcelona wage was high. So Brighton were always going to be in a situation where they were going to have to compensate the player well because Barcelona's finances didn't allow a situation where they were going to shoulder the burden of the wages. So that was quite atypical because Brighton wanted Fati. Fati wanted the Premier League and Brighton, but if that was to somehow in the future turn into a permanent deal, it might be a little bit different financially speaking because Brighton won't necessarily want to overly rock their wage bill, not unless they get Champions League football. But I think more broadly, the model for incoming and outcomings is very clear. Brighton are rigid at times to make sure they protect their football club, but they're also flexible and they know that they've got assets who their recruitment model has found, like with Caicedo, sign for four million, sell for over 100 million. And when they negotiate, they do so fiercely. They don't always put prices on players. Very rarely do they quote a price from the outset. And they make sure that if they are to sell, it's for the benefit of the player. Sometimes they accept that that player can leave for another challenge. But if it happens, it has to be right for the football club as well. And I think we saw that with Moises Caicedo. We saw that with Alexis McAllister. And they were different scenarios, really, weren't they, Johnny and Matt? Because with McAllister, there was less time on the contract. So when he extended before the World Cup, it settled him before the World Cup. But the release clause comes about from the fact that McAllister probably wouldn't have signed with less time left on his contract unless he had that out. Whereas with Moises Caicedo, the club were more protected and ultimately able to get a British transfer record fee. So I think, Johnny, first, what we see with this 
transfer policy is the smartness to find replacements. Kukurea went, Esther Pinnon had already come in, just for one example. They always get their price and they make sure that they seemingly stay in control of negotiations. Yeah, I think they also try to bring in players before the other leaves and therefore that doesn't leave them exposed and then comes back to that minimising the risk. I think the Ansu Fati situation was just a little bit different. They don't normally do deals like that. But once again, an opportunity arose and they looked at it and they looked at it forensically and financially and it seemed to make sense to them. So that's the reason that they went forward with that what they do have now and as we look to the future I don't th- I think Ben you're absolutely right they will not change that model um, and I mentioned those two players earlier who surely will just you know only grow with the club but what they've now established is a pathway so it's a more attractive club to players who maybe see what's happened to Moises Caicedo see what's happened to Alexis McAllister and think well actually if I'm an agent or I'm a club maybe my player can make that stepping stone at a really good club a club that looks after you, but also realises that you may move on if, if you're successful. And if you're successful, that means you brought success to Brighton and Hove Albion. So therefore, they're benefiting from that as well. I don't see that changing, but I think that is a difference going forward now. They're known as a club where if you if you go there as a player, there's a very good chance that you will find success. Matt, what's your feeling behind the scenes of the sort of sense of the ego of a club? And I don't mean that in a big-headed sort of way, but how it's had to adapt its personality to its success. Well, I think the personality of Tony Bloom emanates uh, through the club. I did ask him that, that thing about agents and transfers. I said, do you use your poker skills when you're doing those deals? <laughs> um, I'm sure he does. But he said, no, I, I actually, there are agents that I like and agents I get on with. So he had, or maybe he put it, more subtly than that, I have a relationship with. And I think he was probably alluding to that thing whereby agents can trust him and they can uh, take a player at Brighton and be honest about the fact that you stay here for as long as you need to be, but we'll develop you, you'll get first team football and that's a mutually beneficial arrangement. That's just another facet where I think they're so far ahead of the game. Mm. Uh, Ben, look, uh, I think, you know, many would have, many Brighton fans would have worried when Graham Potter left and wondered what was coming next. Well, in Deserby, they probably have one of the managers of the future and maybe Pep Guardiola's successor. Not that Brighton fans will want to hear that at the moment. Yeah, and I think that there's a natural fit at Manchester City, of course, but Deserby will be able to pick his next job and the next job might just be extending at Brighton as well if everything goes according to plan. I don't think we should be disrespectful to Brighton and the project because if everything evolves, then they'll consolidate their place in European football and let's not forget there's an extra likely Champions League spot as well. So too often with a club of Brighton's size and model, we talk about using it as a, for want of a better phrase, stepping stone. And I think that when you are a great club with a tremendous culture and a top-class manager and you get success, then over time, players will want to stay. The only caveat to that is the same for Newcastle, by the way, as well, is that the wage bill will take some time to catch up. And we're even seeing that at Newcastle with rich Saudi owners. It's relatively challenging to be able to offer a player 250,000 to 350,000 a week. And some players will be financially motivated. But with Deserby, much like with the recruitment on the field, he was a sort of 
not unknown find because he'd done very well at Shakhtar, but some would have thought at the time left field, it might have caught one or two by surprise, but there was continuity there with Graham Potter's style, but he's just a bit more gung-ho. So Graham Potter did a superb job. It earned him a Chelsea opportunity. The one thing Brighton fans might say about the Potter era is they didn't always go and throttle sides when they had leads and at times they struggled a bit more for goals and that's not been the case under Deserby. So what I think he is, Matt, and you've no doubt interviewed him as part of your documentary, is extremely affable and analytical. He has strong man management. He's got an open door policy. He's a tactician. And I think he's only going to get better at Brighton because he's ultimately growing and adapting to the English Premier League. Yeah, I have interviewed him. He is, he's not as, um, what's the right word? Smiley, happy, bubbly, as you might expect. You see him running up and down the touchline uh, like a madman. Um, there's no evidence of that when you meet him. He's, he's quite a serious chap. And uh, he was very keen to point out, because the film we're doing is about the 25-year year history of the club, 26 years now. Uh, he said, you have to remember the DNA of this club. He's very well aware of the background and the history. He said, we're not a top club but we're beating top clubs and we'll continue to go on, on that gradient, that you know trajectory. So, yeah, I, I've, I've got a lot of time for him. He's a, he's a serious individual and, I, yeah, you're right, I do think he'll have his pick of the next job. And I also think Brighton fans and, and the Brighton hierarchy are well aware that he'll move on. But as evidence with Graham Potter, uh, they're always ready. They'll have someone yeah. waiting in, in line. Johnny, your dealings... Um... I suppose some of the question marks would be, right, well, how do Brighton deal post-Europe? You look at the two games they've played so far, they've they've been fine afterwards, haven't they? they you know, a decent draw against uh, Liverpool. Um, and when they came back last time, I think they beat Brighton, didn't they, at, at home? So they've had a couple of home fixtures, which is, uh, sorry, beating Bournemouth, which Bournemouth, is, which yeah. has helped them. Yeah. Um, which has helped them. And, and at how they are dealing with being stretched, obviously that's the big question because obviously that is the next move, which they have uh, accomplished, how you deal with Europe and, um, and, and the Premier League at the same time. Yeah, and I think as Ben alluded to earlier, um, you know, Roberto has started to learn a bit more about the philosophy of the club as time has gone by. But also he's incredibly good at giving opportunities to young players. He always says to me, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, Carlos Baliba or Adam Lallana, it's not about age, it's about quality. Um, and he wants to give opportunities to them. And I think he was he was quick to say after uh, the, the, you know, the defeat to Aston Villa about Moises, but he was quick to say today is I'm very lucky to have these players and that Tony Bloom has, has has got these players in for me. I'm lucky that he has recruited these people. So he appreciates that as well. So I think he'll give people opportunities. Um, I think they are quite a resilient group. I think they've got a lot of leaders. Remember the likes of Milner, Lalana are in there as well, not just for what they do on the pitch, but off the pitch as well. There's a lovely blend there as well. And I think when we look to the future, we're absolutely right. You talk about Roberto and we can always say about what might be the next job. But we were talking earlier about Paul Barber, who stayed at Brighton and Hove Albion for a long time. You know, don't discount the fact that Roberto De Zerbi may actually really enjoy working with Paul Barber, with Tony Bloom and the football club and its culture and may stay a little bit longer than people maybe imagine. What's your feeling then as we wrap up, gents, of where Brighton will end this season? Johnny, I suppose to you first, because um, you're with them day in, day out, more or less. Where, where do you think that they will finish this season? 
Um, I, th- I think, you know, again, top 10 is what they want. They know that it will be difficult to equal or better sixth place, which is their highest ever in the top flight ever. So um, that is something. But I also think Roberto Zerbi wants to win something. Whether it's the Europa League, whether it's the FA Cup, obviously they're out of the League Cup, but he is hugely ambitious. He wants to win things. And so does Tony Bloom as well. You know, it's that moment. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, him swelling his scarf above his head when they got promoted to the Premier League. That enjoyment is still there as a fan. And he wants the fans to enjoy winning something. They've come very close. We all remember Manchester United, don't we? And that FA Cup final. But it's taking that next step and probably that next chapter in Matt's documentary that he's going to have to do once they've won something is probably there. (laughs) (laughs) And then maybe, maybe we'll get a smile out of Roberto then, as long as he's had his coffee and his cigarette. Yeah, for, for, for you, Matt, um, look, you started this as a sort of uh, a 25-year history of the club. You've probably had to adapt and change as, as the success has come along all, during that time. Yeah, we have. Um, 25 years would have ended quite nicely with a 4-0 thrashing of Manchester United. Um, but since then, they keep getting better and better. And uh, just to borrow a phrase from Tony Bloom, but there is no ceiling, there is no glass ceiling at this football club. And as far as where they're going to end up this year, I think Champions League. I think there's every chance they win the Europa League or end up in the top four. That's not just, um, I don't know, I'm just saying that for effect. If you plot the graph and the way they're going, then that's where they're going to end up. I mean, I'm I'm a little concerned about how they started their Europa League campaign, but I can see them pulling that around. But in the way that they came back from 2-0 down in the week. So, yeah, I, I think that the sky is literally the limit. And Ben, for you? I think this is a very good chance of top six. I think Champions League will be a little bit of a push, but right now they're sixth in the table and I think they can stay there. I can see them finishing above Manchester United and Chelsea because of the slow starts that they've had. The battle for either Champions League, the last Champions League spot or Europa League football is so tight. Villa are obviously doing really well under Unai Emery. So that's an interesting battle for Brighton in the sense, can they finish above a Villa Or will a side like Aston Villa ultimately move ahead of Brighton? And then you've got the Newcastle factor there, a new player. So it's tight. But my prediction is that Brighton will be top six. I also think that the run of games they've had and will have after the international break, four games are very reflective of Brighton, what they've achieved and also what they can achieve because they had Marseille and they were able to get a draw. That's not an easy place to go. They did lead against Liverpool, of course, but they still battled back after those two quick goals and they got a point. So there's the character taking points off a team that have much improved in the back half of last season and the opening games of this season in Liverpool. So that draw, again, is a yardstick of where they're at. And then after the international break, they'll go away at Manchester City and then they've got home to Ajax in the Europa League group stage. So those four games collectively are going to give us a good indication of Brighton, how they respond after travelling away from home, how they respond going away at the defending champions, how they then ultimately regroup and can they get three points against an Ajax side that are really in crisis at the moment. So on paper, Brighton should be winning that game. So my prediction is top six, but I think we'll learn a lot about Brighton from the last two games they've had and into the two games that they've got after the international break. Well, we've learnt a lot about Brighton today. Thanks to uh, Johnny Cantor and Matt Lorenzo. Um, thanks for your company, gents. It's been great to have you uh, on board and the um, the background uh, chat around the Amex. And um, Matt, when will we ever see uh, the documentary? Can you can you can you say stop achieving and just be mid table, and then I can finally get this bloody documentary out? 
I think I finished the edit yesterday morning. I've got to get approval from other parties. I think I finished it yesterday morning, so you can look at late November. Excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing that. And maybe if there's a follow-up, maybe you do the next 25 years because it might be even better. Well, I, I pitched for that already. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course you did. It was, it was a two-part yeah, contract. Anyway, lovely to have your company. Thank you both very much indeed. And also my thanks to Fabrizio Romano. Fab is with us every single week. Ben, uh, we'll be back again next week. I think Man City will be our topic, topic of conversation then. It will indeed. And we'll be previewing that game against Brighton. Absolutely. So, you know, it all fits in perfectly. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with your next debrief next week.